Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Vision for You. Today is Sunday, January 14th, 2018. My name is Melanie C., a recovered compulsive overeater from Oregon. The share ID numbers for Friday, January 12th, 2018, are the following. The 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study is 10914-10914. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Meeting is 1000, I'm sorry, 10915-10915. This morning, a vision for you presents, are you really, really done? This is a step one study, step one experience. The big book gives precious, expensive print to step one to illustrate precisely and boldly so that another might find their way. And this is for good reason. This is a deadly disease and the only disease that is an expert at finding loopholes for the I'm not like that. There are very specific identifying factors that set compulsive overeaters of our kind apart from other eaters. The author tells of the disease process, what happens to the body and the mind of a real compulsive overeater to expose the disease for what it is if one is a real compulsive overeater. Illustrated so masterfully that it can be difficult to read for some. Hence, these, I'm not like that, or I'm not that bad reactions. He lines out what the disease looks like in its cups as it takes over a life. The picture painted can be very graphic. What happens, what has to happen to be, a, to be really, really done for good? Well, step into step one. But be of good courage and ask the question, am I done for good? Am I like any of you? If you think you might be one of us and are planning to stop eating compulsively, please come with your best open mind and listen as our guest speaker describes for you the tremendous miracle promised to each and every one of us that suffers. Here today to present, are you really, really done? Is Esther C. from Canada. Esther is a recovered compulsive overeater that once herself was faced with the question and found the solution. She is here to pass on her story and the abundance of miracles as a result of recovery. Please help me welcome this morning Esther C. Good morning, Esther. Thanks so much, Melanie. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Esther C. I'm from Canada, and I am a compulsive overeater, and I'm grateful to be recovered today from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body and to have a solution to all my problems, all of them. Now, I have, maybe some of you could relate to this. I've been a compulsive overeater my entire life since I was a very small child. I don't remember a time in my life where I wasn't either running towards or running away from the food. The how of food, the what of food, and, and thoughts of eating dominated my, you know, just dominated my thinking constantly. Every Every bite I took was full of shame, full of guilt, and and longing, when's the next one going to come, and am I going to have enough? And I remember that it was a a very miserable experience for me growing up as a fat child and a teenager. Uh, You know, I had 
everything that, you know, it should have been an idyllic upbringing for me. I seemed to have much going for me, um, but it was worthless in my eyes because I was stuck in the misery of my battle with food. And I'll tell you, it was a battle that I could not win. Uh, in the, when I grew up already in graduate high school in the late 80s and the early 90s, I did, uh, I did dabble in some meetings. I had tried a lot of other things that didn't work, and I did come into the rooms here and there, cherry-picked some meetings. But I suppose I was not quite ready then. I was still not done all the eating I had to do. Um, to my defense, uh, many of the meetings I went to were absolutely pathetic. A lot of overweight people sitting around talking about their problems. But I, I do recall some meetings where, where they opened the big book. This was in the late 80s before we came out with our old literature. But I was not done eating. I had more eating to do before I became finally ready to admit that I had a problem. So finally, you know, about two decades later, in the spring of 2007, I came into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous for the last time, and I have stayed ever since. And when I first came in, I did a little of this and a little of that, um, mostly, you know, dieting, being abstinent, and fellowship, which I really, really liked. I was so excited to meet other people who did what I did with food. Um, and it worked for a while. I, I, I had on-again, off-again abstinence. And I'll, but I'll tell you the truth. At that time, it didn't bother me so much because I had so much weight to lose that in my mind it was like, well, today's better than yesterday was. So it didn't, you know, this on again, off again didn't seem to bother me. But eventually um, I had a brief relapse where, um, which scared me because I thought to myself, like, I'm, I, I thought like I may go downhill and never recover from that. And at that time I had been listening to um, a phone meeting similar to this one where we went to the big book and I heard something different from those people. They weren't just talking about being absent, but they were talking about the idea of being recovered, um, a state where they wouldn't be fighting with the food so so much, or excuse me, they wouldn't be fighting with the food anymore. And, you know, that planted a seed in my mind. And so when I had this relapse, I thought back to that and I said, you know what, maybe what I need to do is to find a recovered person and have them take me through the steps. So I sat by the phone and took every single phone number, you know, that I had on me, and I, you know, picked up the phone and called people, can you take me through steps? Can you take me through steps? I was kind of amazed to see how there were those people who, you know, talked up a storm, you know, at their meetings and yet had not done the steps. But eventually, thank God, I found someone in, um, like the big book describes on page 25, someone in whom the problem had been solved, and she brought the pages of the big book to life for me similar to the way that we do on this phone meeting. And today I am grateful to be free from that prison where I lived for almost 40 years of my life. So why the big book? I mean, the big book is a book for alcoholics. The big, what does it have to do with me and you on the line, those of us who are compulsive overeaters? Well, the big book was written to help show me, like it says in, um, on page IX, Roman numeral, it was there, written to show me precisely how to recover. The big book teaches me what my problem is. It teaches me what the solution to my problem is and then what actions I need to take to implement the solution and then how to live in that solution every day. So today in particular, I want to talk about my experiences with step one, powerlessness. From, from the big book point of view, the goal of step one is to identify my problem. Once I come to the conclusion of step one, then I know what my problem is. So the first of the chapters that deal with my problem 
is the doctor's opinion. And in that chapter, I learned about one aspect of my disease, um, and that is that I have an allergy of the body. That's how the chapter refers to an allergy of the body. So what, what does it mean? It means that there are certain foods, and maybe you have this as well, and I call them binge foods or trigger foods, and I cannot eat these foods because for me, they trigger something the big book calls the phenomena of craving. Now, what is a phenomena of craving? I, I, I know what craving means because that's the way I feel when I used to want to run to eat you know, cookies and ice cream. But they have a different um, meaning to the word craving. I mean, I know there are people who are allergic to foods, and it triggers for them rashes or stomach aches or, you know, in some cases even anaphylactic reactions. So what does it mean when it says that, um, uh, you know, eating my binge foods or in the big book's case, you know, drinking alcohol triggers the phenomenon of craving? It, it means for me that I can't predict or control the outcome of that first bite of food. I just don't know. Maybe I can get back on track in a day and, and maybe I'll never get back on track. Maybe it'll help for you to think of it this way. Um, for, uh, most people know neighborhoods in their cities that they would never visit, right? Dangerous neighborhoods, or, or, or maybe they're aware of certain regions of the world that they wouldn't dream of, you know, setting foot into. Why is that? Why don't we? Why do we stay away from uh, dangerous situations or, or places? Because I, I know why I don't. Because I'm afraid I might get hurt. I mean, well. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. Who knows? But since I can't predict the outcome, and I and I certainly will have no control over any situation once it starts, I stay very, very far away. And this is the same approach that I take with my binge foods. I cannot ever have them at all because once I ingest them, it's anybody's guess if I'll be able to stop or it's like just a quick ride to death. Death for me, yeah. So the big book teaches me in the chapter, The Doctor's Opinion, that I need to be entirely abstinent. And this is what we call in, our, in, in Overeaters Anonymous allergy of the body, and that is part of my problem. Um, the, you know, the, the, there are foods that I cannot eat. So is this true for me? I mean, is this true for me that when I started eating, I couldn't stop eating? Yes, absolutely. And do I identify with Bill W. and the telling of his experiences? In the chapter titled Bill Story? Yes. I mean, I'm not an alcoholic, but my disease unfolded and progressed similar to the way his did. Yes, yes, and yes. I identify with Bill. I mean, once I finished reading that chapter, I sat down um, at the request of my sponsor and I began to chronicle my own disease. When did my compulsive overeating start? What were, was my relationship like with others as the disease progressed and so on? And let me tell you, it was, it was not a pretty picture. It was a very, very sad story. I want to describe for you what life was like in those days. I, and maybe, maybe you've experienced this as well. I could not control the amount of food I ate. I was fat my entire life. I ate at every opportunity, and I ate as much as there was or as much as I could get away with without being noticed. I remember hiding food in my room so I would always have, you know, my bedroom at home so I would always have a ready stash. My father used to have bus tokens in our, uh, you know, in a desk in in our home so that the children could help themselves to, you know, bus tokens when they would, we need to use them to get to school. And I would take a handful of them and I would sell them at school for cash and then use the money to buy food. 
and this is something um, he never picked up on, something I was very guilty about. Of course, I made amends later. Um, as a little girl, I remember when my mother would host parties, so I would rush home from school, and I would sleep a little bit, so I was well-rested. And this way, I would have the energy to stay up really, really late, and then I'd wait up patiently, patiently until everybody, you know, the party was over and everybody would go to sleep, and then I would tiptoe downstairs so I could start helping myself to the leftovers. And, of course, I only ate as much as I thought that no one would notice was missing. I didn't want anyone to know what I was doing. I was very ashamed of what I was doing. When I got older, I, I had food in my car all the time. I especially rem- I remember that I especially loved uh, once I had a family when my husband would be traveling out of town and the children were very little because then I could put them to bed super early and I could settle down with a nice long novel and some munchies and there'd be nobody there to notice or disturb my food and my relaxation. I remember... I mean, I was always eating in the car, and I remember once my car swerving into a car in the next lane as I was trying to navigate some dish in the car with a fork. Uh, I remember things falling off my lap, rolling off, you know, the front seat. Um, I did, I was not a very good dieter. For me, eating felt like breathing, and I couldn't diet for very long. Uh, I tried regular diets, you know, the pain away diets. I tried some interesting diets from those days. I don't know if anybody on the line remembers the Scarsdale diet, but that that one I like because I always liked the diets where you could, where you eliminated some foods, but there were other foods you could eat unlimited because I really liked everything, and I was okay, you know, eliminating some foods as long as there were other foods I could eat overeat on. So I tried that diet. I tried abstaining from carbs. I tried eating only at the end of the day. I would survive on gum and mints the whole day and then come home and try to eat one meal a day. I tried eating anything, uh, dieting the entire week and then eating everything I wanted on the weekend. I tried acupuncture. I tried homeopathic remedies. I went to many alternative healers. Um, I tried eating only organic or other health foods. I tried food combining diets. I tried high protein diets. I went to see numerous therapists, psychotherapy, hypnosis, and so on and on and on and on, pouring all this money into trying to figure out how I could stop eating. Now, I'm I'm not discounting the value of any of the above programs or food plans or, uh, you know, professionals. I'm only saying my only point is that they didn't help me with my food problem. I, I simply could not stop eating for any meaningful length of time. I used to blame my eating on my my genes, um, my family life, I, 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 anything and everything. Compulsive overeating was not just limited to my being an overweight person. It it seemed to affect every aspect of my life. Uh, this is the part, uh, this is, I definitely understand and relate to the unmanageability in Bill's life. Socially, I, d- I definitely did not like to go out because I was ashamed of the way I looked. My top weight at one point was 260 pounds. I assure you that there's not all that much out there to wear um, in size 4X. Uh, I actually had this experience then from those days if I would go into a store and they would have anything that fit me, I would always buy it in all the colors that, that, you know, that they had that were available because I knew that I might not find it. I might not find something that fits me you know, for months at a time. And, and just as an aside, it was certainly a, a delight, uh, delightful 
uh, you know, change many years later, <coughs> excuse me, when I went shopping in a regular body and I, you know, stood at the store and I was about to buy something in a bunch of colors. And then I said to myself, hey, you don't have to do that anymore because any store is going to have your size. So you could buy what you like and, and expect to find something else that you like someplace else. Anyways, but in those days, I felt very ashamed about the way it looked and I didn't like how I presented myself. I definitely was putting my body at risk by being morbidly obese. I had, I still have, a chronic medical condition, and it was exacerbated by the extra pounds. I, I simply could not support myself uh, in a standing position, you know, for more than a few minutes. For for a number of years, I, I could only shop in places that there was a shopping cart because I needed to support myself. I couldn't go to the mall because in the mall there were no shopping carts. And if I... I had a cane on me, and I kept one in the car. And if I was going like far away where people didn't know me, I was happy to take the cane. But t- typically, in and around my you know neighborhood and city, I I was too embarrassed to do that. Um, that was another experience being able to finally go to the mall because I didn't need to lean on something. And even today, when I go to uh, you know the supermarket or places like Costco. And I see very large people sort of slumped over their cart. I think to myself, I was there. I remember that feeling like hanging on for dear life because I, I simply couldn't stand otherwise. So this, by the way, this walking around with a cane was at the ripe old age of 30-something. So that was especially shameful for me because, I, you know, when I would go in to buy all these, you know, to buy, you know, I had a travel cane and a regular cane. I'd be in a store full of elderly people. They have an excuse perhaps, but what's my excuse? Um, today, thank God, even with my medical condition, I'm able to, you know, do everything I need to do, and certainly do not need support to walk. Um, I was definitely mismanaging household funds. I I was like eating for two, right? I I was as big as two people, and I did this for over 15 years, and so that's one extra, you know, mouth to feed. I could not manage the daily household tasks. Everything was too hard. It was too hard to drag my body around, to keep the house clean, to take care of my children. So I had to hire lots and lots of household help, which put a large dent in our budget for many years. In addition to that, not necessarily related to my physical uh, problems, I I underachieved all through school. All through school, I underachieved. And although I was intelligent enough and I had the support of my parents to do so, I, I never really got around to getting a proper education. And, and there was no real reason why, and somehow I couldn't, put the pieces of my life together, it didn't really make sense. I, I knew that it was related to the food, but somehow couldn't see how. I threw away many opportunities at every turn. I acted against my deepest values, both at home and socially. I, I didn't like who I was. I lied about what I ate, and I felt bad about that. I denied denied eating foods, you know, more lying when I was confronted. I ate food that had been set aside for others and that I had no permission to take. And so spiritually, I was also bankrupt. I I had a higher power at the time. I certainly believed in the higher power, but I, I treated my higher power like a gumball machine. You know, here's my quarter. I did what you wanted me to do. Now you give me what I want and make it fast and don't make mistakes like you always do, right? I told you, God, I want to be slim. I want to be slim. Come on, do it already. I had, had low self-esteem. I did not like myself at all. And, and I would say that I was angry a lot of the time. I could not seem to accomplish any of my life's goals, and I didn't know why. My relationship with those around me, 
um, especially my family, was affected by my eating. And, you know, they basically saw me as demanding and difficult. And somehow I knew the unmanageability of my life was connected to the food. And yet I couldn't, I couldn't stop eating. I'll tell you one particularly humiliating incident. I remember being at a function, you know, in a big hall. And it was, while it was happening, I left the main room to go use the restrooms. And on the way, uh, like I took a misstep and I, I fell. And I had not hurt myself in any way. It was perfectly fine, except this is when I was at one of my biggest sizes. And I couldn't, I couldn't get myself up because there was like nothing around me to, to hoist myself off the floor. Now, when I, had, when I was there in the hall, um, like outside there, there wasn't really, there was like maybe a couple people around, you know, you know going in and out. Um, so maybe one person saw me. So it was, you know, like ha- had I been a regular size, I could have just picked myself up and just continued on my way. But I couldn't get up off the ground. Um, and the knowledge that I was stuck without being able to, you know, get myself up was, filled me with so much frustration that I burst into tears. So this person standing at a distance from me, he saw me, and what does he think? She fell, she broke her leg. Next thing you know, there's like whispering, a bunch of doctors who were in the main, you know, uh, you know, hall coming out to see what they could do. You know, a lady fell, and all these people around me. And finally, one of the, the doctors, who was my friend, a friend of our families, he whispers in my ear, he says, what hurts? Are you okay? And I said to him, I'm perfectly fine. I said, I can't get up. So he brought me a chair and I and hoist helped me hoist myself up into that chair and I sat there and I felt such a bitterness. I said, I, I can't live like this anymore. This is ridiculous. And yet, you know, I didn't stop eating then. It was probably at least five years from that story that I until I came back to the rooms of OA. But just to show you that the uh, the bitterness and humiliation that I lived with and and yet the inability to stop eating. What does the big book have to say about people like me? On page 22, it says, Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle, with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it that he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? So why indeed did I behave like this? Is this normal? Why do I keep going back to the foods and the eating behaviors that sabotage me over and over and over again? Why? Why? Why can't I just decide to abstain and to stay abstinent? The AA 12 and 12 sums it up beautifully on page 22. And there it says, our sponsors declared that we were the victims of a mental obsession so subtly powerful that no amount of human willpower could break it. There was, they said, no such thing as the personal conquest of this compulsion by the unaided will. So that's the other part of my problem. It's true that I have an allergy of the body, but I also have a mental obsession. Otherwise, I could just abstain from my binge foods and I'd be good to go. But I have a, a mental obsession this strange twist of the mind that sends me back to the food over and over and over again. And not only do I have this obsession, I'm powerless over this obsession because my experience has shown me over and over again hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times, that I'm unable to resist all excuses 
to go back to overeating. My allergy is a part of my problem, but it's not the biggest part of my problem. The biggest part of my problem is the mental obsession because that guarantees that I'm going to go back to the food even though I don't want to and even though I suffer. I need to admit that I'm powerless over my compulsive eating. This means that I'm without power from returning to my binge foods and eating behaviors. It also means when I say that I'm powerless, that nothing that I have can give me the power. Not self-knowledge, meaning not even knowing what my binge foods are. That's not enough. Not my desire for things to be different. Not all the physical pain that I suffered. Not the desperation. Not even watching myself struggle and fail at everything important to me. That wasn't enough. There was no person, no situation, no emotional state that I could achieve or anything out there that would give me the power from going back to my binge foods. In the words of the big book on page 24, I am beyond human aid. And this is the point where I admit that I'm doomed, right? This is where Bill describes that he felt like he was in quicksand, bitter morass spread all around him. This is for me step one. This is my problem. The realization that I'm condemned to a slow or quick death. And let me tell you, I really believe that the food would have killed me. And it's not the allergy of the body that condemns me to die. It's the mental obsession. So I need to be 100% sure when I make this admission. Why? Why can I be almost sure? Why can I be 99.9% sure that I'm powerless over these foods? Well, the AA 12 and 12 ask the same question. The AA 12 and 12 ask, why do I have to admit complete defeat? Why must I be 100% certain about this step one conclusion? So I want to illustrate this idea with an exercise that a fellow uh, recovery compulsive overeater once showed me. She had me take out a piece of paper, and she, on one side of the page, uh, let's say the left side of the page, I listed all the painful truths about what my disease did to me. Everything that I just described to you a few minutes ago, she gave me a minute or so to quickly jot them down. So I was writing all the truths about my disease, all the dieting I did, the suffering, the obesity, the physical pain, the uh, destroyed relationships, the inability to move ahead in life, the overspending, the misery, the social shame. You know, it didn't take me long to make a list of, I don't know, 10, 15 truths I know about about how the disease affects affects my life. And then when I was done that, she said to me on the other side of the page, let's say the right side, she asked me to list some of the excuses that I've used to go back to my binge foods. So that was interesting. So I started to, you know, think about that. What what kinds of excuses do I use to go back to my binge foods? I'll start tomorrow. It won't hurt. It's natural. This doesn't count. I'll get back on track on Monday. It's not really a high-calorie food. The nutritionist says that everything okay is in moderation. Science shows that there's da-da-da-da. My life is too hard. It's not fair. All these things, excuses, lies that I tell myself. And why are they lies? Because my experience shows me that they're not true, right? All these lies I tell myself to go back to the, to the compulsive reading, and I wrote those down. Um, you know, these are, to me, they were lies because I never got back on track, <laughs> And it doesn't matter, you know, what the science says. These foods trigger me in a bad way, and some foods are not okay in moderation. My hard life isn't the reason I eat. So so I have on the left side of the page the truth about my disease, and on the right side I have the lies, um, which are excuses to go back to compulsive overeating. So back to my question. Why do I have to be 100% sure that I'm powerless? 
Why can't I be 99.9% sure? Because that tiny fraction of a percentage, that 0.1% of a percentage is going to one day feed on one of those lies. And that lie will grow and grow and grow and grow, and it's going to snowball, and it's going to include many more of those lies, and it will smash every single truth I know about my disease. Forty years of suffering and agony will be completely wiped out, and I'm going to be thinking, oh, this is okay. I think it's organic. And with the utmost nonchalance, like this, 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 this process happens in nanoseconds in my mind, and with the utmost nonchalance, I will pick up my binge food or engage in some type of compulsive behavior, and I will head straight for a spree and all its attendant suffering. And that's why I have to be completely sure. I want to read what it says also on page 30 in the big book, in the chapter more about alcoholism. And by the way, this chapter is written about people who know what they're meant to abstain from. These aren't people who are clueless. They have the self-knowledge, and they still go back to eat. Um, On page 30... And more about alcohol, more about alcoholism. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to fully concede—that's 100% fully—to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. And let me tell you, my disease was very stubborn, and it needed a lot of smashing. And that's why I have to be 100% sure. I have to be absolutely sure that I'm done. If I still think that I have something left in me to fight this problem, I will not admit complete defeat. That's my experience. When I came to the rooms of Overages Anonymous in the words of the AA 12 and 12, I was as willing as only the dying can be. I was out of excuses and ideas, and I was ready to stop fighting and ready for a solution. Are you there yet? Are you ready? Are you really, really, really ready? Or maybe you need some convincing. Should I tell you my friends who helped convince me? There was Betty Crocker and Duncan Hines and Sarah Lee, Baskin Robbins, Joe Louie, I mean, I know I'm dating myself. I don't even know if these foods still exist out there. I'm sure there are new foods on the block. I just don't know who they are, thank God. But these, this is how I convince myself. You, you also may still have more eating and suffering in store for you until you're finally convinced. When I came to this conclusion in step one, I, wasn't, I didn't feel empowered or exhilarated. I was crushed and I was defeated and I was spent when I admitted powerlessness. But that was a very good thing, really, because it positioned me to come to this conclusion and to move forward full speed ahead with the steps and with recovery. Um, I imagine there are all kinds of people on the line today. There may be some of you who have been suffering in the, in the food, um, and this is your very first OA meeting, and maybe those of you who have been in OA for many years, like forever, right, and you're on again, off again, abstinent, and you've never really experienced the freedom that the big book promises. So I'm asking you, are you done? Are you really, 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 really done, or do you need more convincing? But there's a, someone else that I would like to, that I am speaking to today, and it's those of you who, you're recovered, right? And yet you still find yourself wrestling with a new food or a new food behavior. We know, you and I, that... We gave up all the biggies, right? We came into program, 
We gave up the junk foods, the sugar-laden foods, the crunchy foods, the flour products, the high-fat foods, whatever foods are on, you know, your binge list. We gave up. Um, you, you admitted your powerlessness over them. You went ahead with the steps, and you became recovered. But I noticed that as I became more spiritually sensitive and my relationship with higher power grew, that it could be that new foods sometimes become loud and grab my attention. I have had that experience. You know, it could be a new teeny tiny, not very important and not really an unhealthy item that suddenly I find myself negotiating over. It's trying to control and it's knocking around in my head. Now, once a food speaks to me, once I know it, I can't go back to not knowing. And once I've tried to control it, I, I, I can't, you know, set the clock back to neutral. And so I asked myself in that case, even though I've done the steps and I've had seven years of back-to-back abstinence, I still ask myself, Esther, um, you know, after, a, you know, I told you it's knocking around in my head, I, I say to myself, Esther, are you done? Or is this going to be the tip-off point where things spiral out of control and you die? So really powerlessness, I, I know there are people who, who say they do the steps every day. I wouldn't quite phrase it like that. But what I like to say is since I made an admission of powerlessness over the food way back when I did the steps, it informs my choices today. So and I'm reminded of the, that conclusion that I came to in situations like that where new foods start to speak to me, and I choose not to ignore any new realities or challenges today. I, I can't risk it. I can't go back to that way of living. It's not a joke. I take my absence very seriously. I do have a recovered network that I could speak things, these things out with, but I need to be willing to bring it to their attention. I, I don't want to keep anything, any new mm, sensations. I don't, I don't want to keep it to myself. And since I'm recovered today, it's a no-brainer. I don't have to fight with those new foods that start to talk to me, and I don't have to hold on to them until someone you know, you know, pulls them out of my hand and they have claw marks on them. No, for me, it's a simple decision. It's life or it's death. And today, and thank God, all the days since I became recovered, I've chosen life. So for those of you who are new to the program and uh, wondering, <laughs> I mean, today we're talking about step one, and I haven't, haven't, uh, um, you know, I've ex- left it exclusively to the discussion about our powerlessness. I, I don't want to leave you with a cliffhanger. Maybe you're thinking, uh-oh, what's going to be now? Well, I want to tell you that um, once we know what our problem is, there's still one more conclusion we have to come to in step two, right? We have to come to believe in a power greater than ourselves. There's a decision that we're going to be making in step three, um, some personal housekeeping that we'll be doing in steps four through nine, and and then a plan for the future to, to enlarge my spiritual life. So living in line with those principles uh, according to the will and loving guidance of my higher powers, I understand him, this positions me to be the recipient of the greatest gift possible. What's the greatest gift possible? Higher power solves my food problem. I'm no longer a prisoner of the compulsive overeating. That is the most amazing gift in my life. And, and you know, I've been on many diets. I already know how to lose weight. When I came to OA, I thought, okay, so I'll lose weight. And when I was first here in abstinent but not so happy, I thought, all right, if you're going to have to be fat and miserable and and or slim and miserable, I guess slim and miserable is better. But this idea that one day 
I wouldn't be fighting with the food. That is something that was completely unexpected. And I had, you know, read it in the big book and I thought, oh, it can't happen to me. And I'm here to tell you that it really does happen. Those That uh, miracle that's described in the 10-step promises, um, here I'm reading on page 85, we are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we had been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual conditions. Is that not the most amazing problem? Uh, excuse me, the most amazing promise that you have ever heard in your whole life, if you're a compulsive overeater like I am, that, that by embarking on these steps as outlined in the first 164 pages of the big book, that your problem will be solved, meaning I won't be fighting with the food, meaning I could take a bite of food in my mouth and chew it and without feeling like, when's the next bite coming? And that, that to me is the greatest gift of the program. And like I said earlier, when I introduced myself, it, um, the 12-step program of recovery taught me a way of living, which not only solved my food problem, it solved every problem. I have a solution to all my problems due to my to my newfound uh, my new relationship with my higher power and my newfound resource for um, stable, secure, and serene living. So, if you haven't uh, done this process, I I encourage you to stick around with us here on a vision for you. You should join us on this 12-step ride on weekdays. If you stay on after and catch a sponsor when you know they make announcements for those who are available to sponsor and you should join us for the most rewarding journey of your life but let it begin with the admission of powerlessness which is an inside job like I like to say because it begins inside you so Melanie thank you for giving me the opportunity to share and with that I'll pass thank you very much Esther C your, your personal illustration is very clear and quite a persuader and the evidence of the power that's in this big book that's available to every single one of us that changed lives. Thank you for being so vulnerable and bringing all that all out to us today. It's uh, very touching. Thank you so much. And Esther will carefully <laughs> give her contact information at the conclusion of the meeting, so stay around for that. But for now, we're going to open up the lines for those that have questions for you this morning, Esther, if you can stick around for that. Are there any folks out there that have a question about this presentation today? Hey, Mary Lee. Toby W. Hi, Toby. Laura G. And Laura G. Do we have Maura a couple names for the sign-up? Hi, Maura. Nora. Hi, Nora. What's the first initial of your last name, Nora? M, as in Mary. Nora, M as in Mary. Okay, great. Thank you so much. That sounds like a good place to Melanie, start out. Melanie, did you catch with... Maura Z? I did. Hey, good morning. Yes, I'll say good morning. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. You're fine. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go with this lineup. It sounds like a good one to start with. We have Mary Lee R, Toby W, Laura G, Maura Z, and Nora M. Mary Lee, you want to go with your question first? Good morning to you again. Good morning to you, Melanie, and thank you. Um, I just, um, would you share some of your um, daily practices? And you just gave a shining example of um, step one and the powerlessness and 
the unmanageability. So could you share what it's like for you on a daily um, basis now in recovery? Thank you. Sure. I think that's probably like the most um, oft-asked question I hear on the line during special editions. No matter what the speaker is sharing about, there's, there's usually someone who will say, what does your day look like? Um, and I hear it. Um, so um, my daily, you know, we the Big Book talks about steps 10, 11, and 12 are the things that uh, the steps or the, you know, guiding principles for us to enlarge our spiritual life and, you know, to grow and, you know, to make, you know, keep, you know, maintain our, our you know, sort of serene and secure uh, relationship with the world. So for me, um, in a nutshell, the 10th step is what I do to uh, keep myself unblocked from a higher power. And the 11th step is what I do to build that relationship. And the 12th, step 12 is what I do to um, to carry the message to others and to live a certain way, you know, not just to, to carry the message to other compulsive readers, but just to live in a way that's sort of where I get to be an ambassador of God. So in terms of 10th uh, step, what I do with 10th step really is I, I do it as they things come up. I don't have a, a plan for how I do 10 steps because if I'm if I'm serene and peaceful, then at that moment there is not a reason for me to you know to do anything. But typically those things will come up, so I'll feel irritated, I'll feel upset, I'll be uh, you know annoyed, angry, you know a whole range of feelings. When that feeling comes up, it's kind of like you know on my dashboard when I see that light flashing, that's my sign that I, I'm you know somehow blocked or I'm a little off track. And then I do a 10 step in the you know or whatever, a four through nine, similar to the way I had learned to do it way back when. Um, mostly today I don't do them written, but sometimes there are things that are very stubborn and I do, you need to put pen to paper. And I listen carefully when people share on the line because especially with those stubborn resentments that seem to crop up often. Now, 11 step is something that permeates my life even more than 10 step, and that is what I do to build my relationship with my higher power. So in the morning, I wake up, and you know the first thing I say are those pages. Um, I'll tell you where they are. Uh, you think you'd say it so many times, you know, you know it off by heart. I'm on page 86 on awakening. I just, I just read those um, four paragraphs to myself, and this way it sort of orients me like. You know, so before I, so when I get up, I don't rush into my day. I just say those four paragraphs, and then I start to get ready. And once I'm ready to begin my day, you know, after getting dressed, etc. So then I have uh, my time with prayer. Now, a lot of my um, things I do for 11th step are centered around my own personal practices, not having to do with, um, you know, the 12 step rooms. But t- they will include um, constant. Uh, expression of gratitude to God. It'll include prayer at different points of the day. Um, it'll include sort of trying to find God in everything. I don't get out much, and um, but when I do, if I have the, you know, 
opportunity to walk when it's beautiful out there. I use, I, I have different cues. When I'm walking, I know it's meant to be time for, with me and higher power. When I go to the supermarket to go shopping, it's especially a time that I capitalize to build my relationship with God, full of gratitude. God, look, I'm in this store. I could afford to buy food for my family. And, and not only you, you have, there's enough here and there's variety and it's, and it's healthy and it's just, just again, uh, capitalizing on opportunities to show my gratitude and to uh, appreciation to my higher power for, you know, all the gifts I enjoy today. Um, but like I said, I do have formal times for prayer and meditation. Um, I, I'm sure I'm not going to go through them with you because they're my own personal things and they're, not, you know, not interesting to everybody and sort of at, beyond the scope of, you know, 12-step discussions. But I definitely start the day with about 20, 20 or so minutes of prayer and I end the day with five, ten minutes of prayer, and then, I, as I said, in between, you know, um, little short prayers. I think that's it. Oh, I'm sorry, Esther. I thought maybe I was stepping on your toes. Thank you so much, Mary Lee, for your question. Toby W., you're next. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. Uh, this is Toby W., uh, presently in California, and um, gratefully abstinent today. I'm done, and mm-hmm. I have a guy who's taking me through the steps, and I'm in early withdrawal, and I have a couple of questions. One is, Esther, would you talk about the withdrawal, what that is like? I don't hear too many people talk about it. And also, one of the things that I would like you to say, I think you talked about it, but the effect that you got as a result of of eating, what did it do for you? I'd be interested in those two questions, if you would, please. Thank you. Sure. Thanks, Toby. So early withdrawal, I remember it very clearly. It was very hard for me because, you know, I'd not really had been successful in any diet. So I I remember it was the long stretch between meals. I would do a lot of pacing. I just did whatever I had to do to just do it because I knew because I was told that eventually the withdrawal would be over. So I did a lot of pacing. I remember drinking a lot of water with like, you know, squeeze of lemon juice in it, which I don't really like. It's kind of tart and unpleasant, but I just did that because I thought that would, you know, give my mouth something to do. I bought a whole box of straws and I would chew straws and fold them over and chew them and chew them and chew them. Now, if I were still doing that today, that would be a little problematic, but certainly in the early weeks of recovery, that was what I had to do to stop, um, like just to get me from one meal to the next. And there was a part of me that didn't, like I guess I had the good sense not to get myself into some other compulsive behavior. Like I didn't want to start shopping or doing other things I shouldn't. So one of the other ways I got through the early withdrawal was I had taken piano as a child and I started to take lessons again at that time. And it was I felt like a productive uh, energy-releasing thing to do when I was all pent up with, uh, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? It's like two hours till my next meal. So I felt if I could sit and practice, you know, the lessons, whatever, then that would be um, something that I could do with all that extra energy. But I assure you that it goes away. I never, ever today feel like 
like I sort of being held back from my binge food is just not just a non-issue. So, so if that's somehow uh, inspiring for you to know that it, it does have its end that early withdrawal. Now, in terms of the effect the food had on me, food did everything for me. I couldn't get through my day without food. Um, it, it's a, you know, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's quite like oxygen, but pretty close to it. It did everything for me. It, when I was in a bad mood, I ate. When I, when I looked at all that I had to do and I was, was a bit fearful of how I was going to manage, I ate. Um, when I was fear, nervous about, you know, not being able to do something, I ate. When I was bored, I ate. Yeah. Thank you so much, Toby W. Laura G., your question is next. Laura G., your question is next. Am I being heard? You are. Good morning. Thank you so much. Thanks for your service and your uh, um, everybody's service for being here this morning. Um, I got the end of the message, and... Um, I feel like it's just the message I was supposed to hear, um, the part about if you're new and, you know, don't be overwhelmed because, um, you know, it takes a while sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't take a while. And uh, the more you listen to the special recordings and the more you keep coming back, you're going to hear a lot of things that uh, sometimes feel really confusing. I'm out here at the OA party today. I'm Laura Gonzalez. I'm a compulsive overeater. And um, I'm hearing so many things uh, during this year, like I did last year and the, and the year before, that um, you just, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense sometimes. And then sometimes it just makes all the sense. And um, I'm feeling really excited and hopeful again about one day being able to get on the line and say, I'm Laura G., a recovered compulsive overeater. Um, I sense it. And I trust Laura, it. do you have a question that you can formulate for Esther? Oh, I'm so sorry. I forgot about it. Question. I don't have a question. <laughs> okay. I, I forgot. I'm so sorry. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, thank you for your 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 recovery and your enthusiasm for sure. Those things are I, very telling. I'd like to just telling. address something that Laura said, if I could. Yeah, absolutely. It sounded like Laura, you that what you heard was that. Um, you know, if you keep coming back and listening, I actually didn't, didn't, I don't remember that I said that. I mean, towards the end of my talk, I didn't want to leave those people who are in the food with a, a cliffhanger feeling like, okay, now I know I have a problem. What's going to be? So I put in a, just briefly about the, you know, the beauty and benefits of recovery. But I, I remember clearly saying at some point that um, it's not showing up into these rooms where, you know, that got me to my admission of paralysis. It was, um, an unbelievable amount of suffering and that um, if someone is not quite there yet, perhaps they have a lot more eating and suffering to experience before they're willing, you know, to make that admission. So I do not deny the value of coming to meetings um, and hanging out with recovered people and, and dreaming of what life could be like then. But I, I would say, um, you know, maybe, sit down and write your your own history and your own suffering. Somehow when we put it on paper, 
you know, that brings us to that point of, I can't, this is crazy, I can't believe this, all this suffering, and then maybe at that point we're ready. But since um, compulsive overeating doesn't seem to be as punishing, or, or at least it's very slow, not as punishing as, you know, alcohol or perhaps drugs, um, it could take us decades to get to our bottom. So I just wanted to throw that in. Um, and and I wish you the, all the best and, and that you'll come to that place too, you know, that place of bitter morass. Thank you so much, and thank you so much, Laura G., for coming on the line. Morrissey, you're next. Awesome. Thank you, Melanie. Good morning. Morrissey, recovered in Virginia. Esther C., it's so good to hear you on the line again. Thank you so very much for giving so much of yourself. <clears throat> I would love um, if you would share the uh, exercise your sponsor had given you about the um, the right and left side of the page as far as what you had done and then what were the lies. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sure, that would be great. It was something I only learned recently, like in the last year or so. It was not my sponsor who showed it to me. It was uh, one of my fellows in recovered compulsive overeaters who has used this exercise with some of her own sponsees. And what she would have them do, um, and this, and this, she would have, she. This is what she, exercise she did to illustrate what it means to have. A mental obsession so she on the left side of the page I mean you could choose any side but let's say on the left side of the page she would have them write down all the truths they know about their disease in terms of the, their suffering so and she doesn't give them a whole long time just you know jot you know from um, take let's say two minutes and at that point I'd written down all the ways that the you know all the things that my the disease had done to me um, you know my I was morbidly obese. I had a lot of health concerns, um, um, you know, misery, the social shame, you know, spending like crazy, and the inability to move ahead in life, the physical pain. I had a lot of physical pain. Destroyed relationships. She would have me write that. She'd give me two, she gave me two minutes. And then when I was done that, she said on the right-hand side of the page, write all the excuses that you, you, you yourself, meaning me, have used to go back to my binge food. Um, and that included things like, I'll start tomorrow, this won't hurt, it's, it's a natural uh, ingredient, so it doesn't count as my binge food, I'll get back on track on Monday. It's, it's not really a lot of calories, so it should be fine, because it's, it's okay with my calorie count. Um, the nutritionist insisted that I did it X, Y, and Z. Science shows that everything is okay in moderation. So all the types of excuses, and I would list them, she gave me like two minutes to do that. And, and then she explained to me this idea that all it takes is one of those little, you know, excuses to smash down the, all those truths on the left-hand side so that all that pain and misery and what I know about my disease, all the pain and misery and the truths I know about my disease are able to be completely overlooked and smashed away by the tiniest of lies because those lies are not true on the right-hand side. Those, those excuses that I used to go back to my food, they, they, never, they are never true, right? They're never true. I end up back in the food in a crazy way. No, it's not okay if it's organic. And no, I never got back on track and stayed on track on a Monday. So, and then she, would, we would read together, she read together with me um, the first three paragraphs on page 30. And I thought that was, a, a, for me, like this idea of like the one little lie on the right smashing all the truth on the left 
was a very good visualization of, of how the mental obsession works. So that is that's yeah, hopefully perfect. That, that's Thank something you so helpful. much. You can even do it like I mean, I was recovered when I did it, but it was still very yeah. helpful. Um, one quick question: You said first three paragraphs on page thirty. You're talking about Roman numerals. No, I'm talking about more about alcoholism. Got it. Okay. The Thank idea you. that somehow someday he will control. That's the great obsession. Oh yes. Thanks so much, Maura. Next one is Nora M with a question for for um, Esther C. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Wait. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> so um, I have just listened to to the phone calls maybe two or three times. And um, I'm just very interested in what Esther was saying, and I have some questions about it. Um, so I, when I was in my teens, I, I was a bulimic, not diagnosed, and, you know, I kind of managed it. And I feel like most of my life I managed it. And then in my 30s, I did emotional release seminars, and then I realized I had a problem and I got a grip, I thought. I, and, and I kind of live my life thinking it's fine, but somehow um, I decided to get on one of these calls because I was having some uh, some challenges in my life, uh, big challenges right now, and I had a friend who suggested, and so I'm listening to Esther, and I'm, you know, looking at where, do, where, where is it, um, how would I say this, how can I determine that I don't have it un under control because in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you know, food is food. Everybody in the world has to eat and, you know, everybody wants an ice cream and, you know, a lot of people then eat their ice cream and, and I mean, I just, just to say, speak for myself, I gave all that up for many reasons a long time ago, but I do realize like now in this challenge, I realize when I'm anxious, I eat, you know, I'm I'm not present in my eating and I have fear around eating. I'm afraid to eat. Uh, and there's like this little thing that's still there. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, that's just so. There's no way I can, that's not going to go away. I'm never going to be able to get rid of that. So my question is, is that true? Is it, is it possible to really get to a point where, that doesn't exist anymore because I thought I heard you say that's possible, but in my mind, that's not possible because food is food, right? We do have to eat. You're asking if it's possible to come to a point where, I'm sorry, Nora, do you want to clarify that question? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, is it possible where, it's not even a conversation anymore. I mean, I don't even know how to say it, but it's a feeling I have that it feels like it's a normal thing to some extent. Even someone that doesn't have food issues, you know, they might one day eat too much or, you know, one day think about it. Uh, so, so I'm, for me, I'm just looking at within where I've gone, as far as I've gone with my whole food thing, I came to a place where I thought, you know, I think I'm okay, but I do know that I, for example, last night, 
I was very hungry, and I ate at a restaurant, which I normally don't do, and I was anxious, and I ate my whole plate, plate of food, even though I didn't really need it or want it. And so I know that's not normal in my mind, but then I think, okay, this happened one time. So my question is, specific, is that realistic that if I, you know, that that's going to go away forever, that I'm, that I'm not going to go through those kind of scenarios anymore? That, that's my question because it feels like it seems inevitable. Okay, thanks, Nora. Um, that's a great question. So I want to tell you that there are many people on the line today, and you hear these voices, you know, during our meetings during the week and on Sunday special editions, and they tell you that, yes, that food for them is in, in a neutral position, and they don't, do not have the desire to eat their binge foods nor eat compulsively in any, you know, in any other way, like, for example, by overeating, et cetera. So we're, we are uh, here to tell you that that is possible. Now, every individual should decide for themselves, and if, you come, if you've been along for the ride for us and join us for the you know, study of the big, there are different points where we are being asked, um, is this you? Do you relate to this? Um, there's description of all types of drinkers in the book, hard drinkers, moderate drinkers, and real alcoholics. And you will hear in people's share, um, you know, when people share that when they realize that they were not simply people who like to overeat, but people who, were, you know, were powerless over their foods. Now, for me personally, I, I could, I could see myself. I, I could easily get into other, um, not constructive and you know, compulsive behaviors, let's say aside from food. But one thing that differs for me from eating and let's say some of the other things that I used to do is the unmanageability of my life. So let's say um, if, if I'm able to control um, what I'm doing, then, then you know, I don't need to go to a 12-step program because it's like, a, you know, whatever compulsive behavior I'm engaging in, it, it's at a place where, I suppose that, you know, it doesn't affect my life. It's the unmanageability of, of living that brought me to the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. So, yeah, there are people out there. I have plenty of friends who eat too much, who diet on and off, but, you know, they, they somehow still keep going. I Perhaps if they came to the rooms and came to a few realizations, then maybe their lives would improve, but I guess their lives aren't bad enough um, for them to have to, put, you know, put aside their way of living and now accept a, a new way of living. Um, but that's something that everybody has to decide on their own. But it sounds in the very little that you said that um, that food has taken you through the ringer. And and I imagine it's affecting your life in a, in a big way, and that itself would be a reason to come and study with us and to see, am I one of them? Does, you know, am I someone who once I say I'm not going to do something anymore, do I still go back to do it, even though I hundreds of experience have shown me that I'll end up back in the food. And if that's the case, then you may be one of us. Um, that's the admission of powerlessness. That's the point where we say, I'm not just someone who likes to eat too much, right? I'm someone who cannot control uh, the outcome of the first bite. Now, in terms of, we, you know, we need to eat, it's true that we need to eat, and we probably need a variety of foods to stay healthy, um, the people who are recovered are not abstaining from eating. They are abstaining from their binge foods and binge eating behaviors, like eating all day or eating too much. 
Um, so, yeah, we still eat, and we know that we have to, and we have to put great care into making sure that the appropriate foods are, you know, we've prepared, you know, every day. But um, we've, we've all here to tell you that um, we eat, uh, you know, nutritious foods that, you know, support our, you know, our bodies, but that we don't uh, engage in compulsive uh, compulsive eating anymore. So I hope that's helpful. Thank you, Nora, for that question. I'm going to open up the lines for other questions relative to Esther's presentation today. If you have a question, please press star 1. I'd love to take your name. And there are 300 people on the line, so if you have a question, I'll bet you there are more that have that same question. So step out and ask Amy the G. question. Lori, hey, Amy, come on in. Lori, June S. Did you say June? Yes, June S. June, June S. Okay, thanks so much. Anybody else? I have Amy, Lori, and June. Ramona Laura M. M. Ramona and Laura. Did she say Laura M? Laura, yes. Okay, great. Got you too. Let's go with that and see where we come to. Amy G, Lori T, June S, Ramona A, and Laura M. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Melanie. Thank you, Esther, so much for your service today. What an awesome uh, share of uh, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Much appreciated. Um, Amy, reco- recovered compulsive reader from Maryland. And I guess I was wondering if you could expand on when you were talking about what you were doing um, during the initial period of, uh, you know, withdrawal and step one and, you know, what is the difference? What would you say was the difference between what, we would say it's white knuckling while we were dieting, you know, doing similar things and what you were doing and the tips that you were giving during the withdrawal once you had surrendered in the program. You know, what was the difference for you between white knuckling and, you know, working the tools and the steps of the program for you during that period? I hope that made sense. Sure. Now, when I had described, like, the things I used to do when I first got abstinent, that was when I came into the program at recovery and – you know, in 2007, at that point, I was not working the steps, and it would be a couple of years before I would work the steps in the big book, but that was, it was at that point when I, you know, got off my major binge foods and got very involved, you know, in the 12-step rooms, lots of outreach calls, etc. cetera. Um, <clears throat> down, I, the reason I had on-again, off-again abstinence for those first couple of years was I was in one of those programs where, you know, the sponsor sort of dictated, um, you know, dictated the uh, sort of the rules of the game in terms of abstinence. And, you know, here and there I would, you know, not eat the right thing or uh, I I I never went back to my major binge foods all those times. There were sometimes I ate too much and sometimes where I ate like, you know, questionable foods, but I never, you know, the relapse that I had was all of a few days long and it was, you know, was basically eating – foods whose ingredients technically I still ate. I was so fearful of sugar. Sugar is such a, I can't tell you what a trip for me that I never went back to eating sugar ever because um, I, like sugar also had had a very strong connection to my physical, my, my medical problems. Like if, if, like if I couldn't, I, I went from walking with a cane and then when I gave up the sugar a month later, I could walk without it. Even before I had lost all my weight, um, there was a, a very strong connection between sugar and my medical problems, so I never went back to that. But but the first few years of program was like sort of on again, off again. When I finally met someone in whom the problem had been solved, and you know we sat down and we started the step work, and then I again had to sort of re 
you know, recommit my abstinence. I wasn't coming from having binged like crazy. I was coming from, you know, hiding in my room with a bag of chips, so a very large bag of chips. Maybe it was even two bags of chips. So I didn't have that type of withdrawal the second time. However, in my journey, as I'd mentioned, new foods and new behaviors started to talk to me. So I do have to... Um, um, it's not withdrawal per se because it's not like this huge uh, thing that I, it's not as huge as it is the first time. Um, when a food, you know, I, I think a lot and I talk to myself a lot. So I was, I had an issue with, <coughs> excuse me, volume. Even though I was uh, technically abstinent because I was eating, you know, my way to measure food, I tried to expand my food by e- eating foods that are very light, like cabbage and or lettuce or or foods that bloated me you know, things like that. So I had to stop doing that. Now, anyone else would say, if, you, if it's 16 ounces or whatever, eight ounces of vegetables, it's eight ounces of vegetables. But I was saying, when I eat those vegetables, they fill me up, and, and that feeling of fullness felt like a trigger to me. So I had to stop doing that. So, the, you know, when I finally realized it, I, I would talk to myself. I, would, um, I didn't have um, a specific, uh, like, how am I going to get through this? Because I knew that, like, like a week or two later, it would be over. Like my experience was, you know, you put something down and then in, in a few weeks, assuming that you, you're abstaining from it, then, you know, the, the craving goes away. Um, so the white knuckling um, part of my program really came after I'd lost all my weight and I had not been working the steps and then it was seemed like very hard to maintain my abstinence and, you know, Six weeks of that, six weeks, excuse me, six months of that white knuckling is when I picked up those potato chips while I was listening to meetings like this. And then I realized, wait, there's something else. There's something better than, um, you know, white knuckling. And, and you know, this, there is peace for the, from the food out there. And that's when I decided I had to do the steps. Um, I, I know it's a little bit disjointed, all the thoughts I shared with you. But again, it wasn't like, it wasn't so linear. There were, you know, different points where it, I had to do different types of, uh, um, you know, coping with. Uh, let's say, uh, um, not being able to eat, right? So there was an early withdrawal when I really got off my big binge foods, and then there was, you know, the white knuckling that I had when I, you know, lost all the weight and hadn't done the steps yet. And then today, as a recovered person, there's sort of a little bit of, uh, you know, a spiritual work that is required when I notice a new food and it's time for it to go. And I hope that's helped. Thanks, Amy. Thank you, Amy G. Lori T., you're next. What's your question? Yes, thank you very much. Oh, sorry. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for this opportunity, and thank you so much for that great share. Uh, Two questions, please, Esther. One, you mentioned about your Step 10, how you don't write them, but you didn't go into detail. And I hear people from, you know, people that are just almost constantly calling folks all day and other people who just kind of take it they can manage them unless it's at a certain level. They they tend to reach out then, but they tend to do it as mostly an internal turnover. So I'd like to hear if you can tell me a bit about what your step tens look like. And then I want to ask you a question. When you mentioned the the straw chewing um, during withdrawals, um, and whether you whether you were able to identify that it isn't just abstinence, but there are also these compulsive behaviors like like chewing and like this this kind of mouthwater, all these other things that happen that aren't necessarily related to a specific um, allergy, but that go along with part of of get, becoming free from the obsession and the behaviors. Um, I hope I made that clear. If not, I'll clarify. Thank you so much. 
Thanks, Lori. So number one, regarding step 10, um, first, when I first recovered, I actually set the timer, like the clock on my cell phone to ring, I don't know, periodically every two hours because I was so not in tune with like how I felt about things that I could have gone the whole day, rushed through the busyness of my job and not even realize that I was angry or irritated or bored or whatever it was. So I set the timer to go off and I would say, what are you feeling now? And I'd say, well, you know, I'm really mad at my assistant because I blah, 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 whatever it was. So then I would, you know, I had little folded, you know, dog-eared uh, f- photocopy um, in my purse that I'd pull out and I would, you know, write, you know, just write a little, you know, it sort of had the columns, you know, of the inventory out there and I would write them out. Um but I didn't do the writing for long because I, I, I always felt that 10 steps should be brief and to the point. Um, and so I continued to do them as I felt their feelings come up. Now, as life went on and I grew spiritually, the 10 steps weren't as frequent. Like there was a time where I could have 60 a day, and it's not like that today. And I, I do address them in my mind. I, I know that not everyone does it like this. I only uh, pick up the phone and address them um, with somebody if they're very large or, uh, you know, if I'm if I'm mad that the person took the parking spot, I don't stop, you know, and I, and I you know, run through that 10 step in my mind. I don't then stop my day and call someone to share that because that to me is not, um, uh, you know, I, I don't do that, but if it was something much larger, um, is something more stubborn, something that involved a rela- like a, 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 a critical relationship in my life. So at some point during the day, typically at the end of the day, I would pick up the phone and say, can I run through this 10 step that I've been through with you? Now, I know that there are people out there who will say that every 10 step needs to be spoken out with someone. I definitely think there's a value in that, certainly in the early years. So I myself do not have such a large recovery network, and I'm at work all day. So I spoke this over with my sponsor, who herself um, had worked full time for many years, and she's got you know like 30 something years of back to back abstinence. And she said she you know she she's on the boss's dime. She could not be stopping and making calls. Um, it also occurred to me I know in one of Bill W's writings he spoke about some of the. Uh, recovered AAs who went off to fight in World War II, um, you know, and how they'd done so well and they came back sober and et cetera. And at the time I was thinking, like, they surely did not, wherever they were, stop people to do 10 steps. And and even in the early years of AA where phones were not as available and certainly long-distance calls were not common, um, I, I, I my guess is that people did not, were not able to, um, just pick up the phone to process everything that happened to them. But having said that, I I am I I work and live and socialize among people who are all on a uh, some type of spiritual path of you know where they do similar things. So even if it's not someone who's actually an OA, I I can have people like the person sitting beside me at work who I can share something like this with if if, I, if I'd like. Um, you know that's how I that's a way that works for me. But everyone needs to decide for themselves. Um, you know the, the important thing being that we live peacefully and that we grow spiritually. And if that's happening, then 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 that's great. So that's that's uh, you know what I have to say about ten step. Um, and now in terms of the um, 
straw chewing and other compulsive behaviors. Uh, again, if I were chewing straws today, I would say that there's a problem. If I was having a struggle with the stretch between meals, that doesn't sound like peaceful um, abstinence. Um, you know, that certainly uh, it's certainly ac- acceptable, I guess, you know, in the early years, but. I keep hearing, and I kept hearing on the line about the peace, the serenity, the not fighting with food that people experience. So if I'm not experiencing that, um, you know, as the years go by, then that would be something I'd need to, you know, um, to, to look into. I find that as I grow spiritually, my sensitivity to everything changes, and my behavior changes. I mean, I didn't, I don't like chronicle it. It just one day I look back and I'm like, hey, I don't do that anymore. Um, like I always tell people, like, when was the last time you wiped your face with your sleeve, right? When we were kids, we always did that. We would wipe our face with our sleeve. And at some point, we stopped. Do you know the day you stopped doing that? No, we don't. But at some point, you, you know, you grew spiritually and you realized that that's not, you know, respectable behavior for you. And then you stopped doing it. And the same thing with uh, some of the other behaviors around food. I know that, uh, I, it's funny to admit this on the line, but like I would eat, everything to the last drop. Sometimes I would even bring the plate to my face if there was something left to the plate. So again, in early days of recovery, my sponsor would say, yeah, you're not going to be doing that forever. And today, if I knew someone who was recovered for seven years and licked her plate, I, I would think that that behavior requires some attention. So I don't know where you are, Lori, in the step work, but I, I wouldn't worry too much about, you know, about some things that you may be doing unless, of course, you're further along the line and those behaviors are bothering you and then you could take a look at why you can't just let the meal end without, you know, or whatever behavior you you think you might be problematic for you. I'll pass. Thank you, Lori T. Thank you, S, for answering those. June S., you're next. Your question, please. Yes, good morning. Um, thank you so much for your share. It spoke to me so much on so many levels, Esther, especially the, the area of some foods that talk to you. I'm going to think about that heavily. But I'm a recovered. I'm neutral towards the food. But my life is still unmanageable in various, more or less, unimportant ways. And they're just tasks that have to be done, but it causes some lack of peacefulness. So, you know, I was thinking of this first step and our lives will become unmanageable and that seems to affect me. So could you speak with that? Thank you. June, how long are you recovered for? Uh, since July 2017. Since July. Um, my sponsor taught me something in the early years of recovery and she taught me about frequency, intensity, and duration. But you know, once I did the steps and recovered, I had a a way of living and I knew what I needed to do on a daily basis. And she told me that the frequency, intensity, and duration of, let's say, some of the unmanageable parts of my life um, would, you know, there'd be greater distance between them. So I think even in Bill's story, he writes, I'm just going to try to find that page, where he was overcome with waves of resentment and where was it? Resentment and uh, let me find it. Uh, um, you know, at some point, life became hard for him, right? Because 
but life is the mm-hmm. life and it doesn't change because we became recovered. But we now have a way to manage um, the ups and downs of life. Uh, but again, I mean, June, um, you're, since, since the summer, we're talking like six months, it w- it would, it's not a surprise to me that, you know, there's still things in life that are hard for you, but there should be a sense that things are improving somehow. And if they're not, definitely pick up the phone and share it with someone. I mean, when you are feeling off in any way, meaning not serene, then, you know, for me, anyways, doing 10 steps would be would be one way for me to uncover what my problem is. And most typically, I will see that I have an idea of how life should be, and when life isn't my way, I have a hard time accepting that. I mean, that's basically what most of my 10 steps boil down to, is that I, I want things my way. I need things my way to feel comfortable and secure. So um, if there's parts of your life that aren't working and you're doing the... Um, 10 steps faithfully, I would definitely share them with somebody and see if they could shed light on it. Thank you, June Thank S. You. Appreciate it. Thank you, Esther. Appreciate the question there. Ramona A., you're next. Hi, this is Ramona in Vermont. Can you hear me? Yes, Am I on okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And thank you, Esther, for all you've, you've information you've given us this morning and I hope I can make this question clear it's my food is good and um, you know weighing and measuring etc but I have um, the mental obsession comes back from time to time and the mental obsession not necessarily for food but for say a variety of food let's have something a little different today and I can tell it's an emotional thing, and I do do the 10 steps, et cetera. And just wondering about that, how now maybe like you just spoke, you know, that will go away with time. Or is there something that I missed going through the steps? The other thing, it seems to be worse since I was told for a medical reason a few months ago that I need to eat five to six meals a day, smaller meals, instead of three. I was doing beautifully with three. And uh, it's more difficult because it feels more like I'm either preparing or eating all the time. So um, I accept the reason it's so, but I'm wondering if that feeds into, you know, the, the more the mental obsession. So thanks for your thoughts, and I'll listen. Ramona, you said you're recovered? Yes. Okay. I actually feel for the people who have to eat more than three times a day because one needs to be busy with food, but I don't think that every of those five or six meals per day needs to be a, a big to-do. You could just be the same thing you ate, you know, like you're, there's like four or five major food groups. So if you've got to eat a protein, why can't it be like the same protein three, four five times a day, um, you know, everyone, if you're feeling like um, there's too much preparation, it's because you're maybe preparing too much. Um, If you make whatever protein and you eat it three out of the five meals and then another protein for the other two, it should definitely simplify things, right? Because then all you have to do is reach into the fridge, put it on the scale, warm it up if it needs to be eaten warm, and then you're done. Um, 
now this, this feeling that you want variety uh, a, a, a body needs a variety of foods to maintain optimal health and today as a couple, recovered compulsive overeater, I, I eat to maintain optimal health. I also have certain food preferences, things I don't like so much, and things I prefer. Um, so in that way, there is some variety. But if I'm feeling like I need my food to be more exciting, that is definitely something that I would speak out with another recovered person. Um, meaning, because if you if you you know follow the science and try to put like, you know, different color vegetables on your plate and, you know, get your vitamin C from here and then get your calcium from there. So, you know, you, you, you're going to probably have a bit of variety in what you eat. So I, I'm not sure what you meant about this obsession to have more variety. Is it obsessed? Like, are you looking going, you know, I, I haven't had anything orange and I know that the orange vegetables provide X for my body. Then, then I say there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're like, oh, this food is so, you know, something so boring about the food or you want more interest, then I would definitely um, uh, speak that out with somebody. And and I'm glad that you are a weight and measure person because eating five to six meals a day and not weighing and measuring, measuring could, I, I don't know how a person would not overeat um, in that case. So think about that a little bit. I'll pass. Thank you, Esther. Thanks. Thank you, Ramona. Mm. <laughs> Sorry about that. So our last question for today will be coming from Laura M. Good morning, Laura. Thank you for your question. Good morning. Uh, actually, my question's been answered, so I'll pass. Oh, okay. Well, Esther, would you like to take one more to take us to the top of the hour? or are you... Yeah, that's the time. Okay, so let's see if we can't get it to the top of the hour. It's probably one more question. We'll see what we do from there. Uh, Christine Ann? Okay, we'll take Christine. Hi. Um, yes, I'm so glad I, I heard uh, Esther's story. My question um, is, at your stage of development as a recovered um, compulsive eater in whom the problem's been solved, but we're still growing you know, an intimacy with God and ourselves and our fellow human beings. So at this stage of your development, do you still write down and call in your food every day to a sponsor? So it's a good question, actually. Um, I wrote down and called in my food um, for many years, and my own sponsor does not have that practice um, of calling in her food. And after about three or four years, I also, what's the word, I sort of, like, you know, fizzled out of that practice. But a number of years ago, um, someone called me. I was thinking maybe it's time to go back to doing that. Um, uh, someone called me and asked me if she could, you know, commit her food to me. And I said, you know what, that, I think it's a good idea to go back to doing that. So I do. But it's not um, It's not grounds for, uh, what's the word, like maintaining my absence, meaning, but at this point we don't call anymore. It's usually email, so I'll get to you know, I'll get to my you know computer and I'll send her off what I'm eating and she sends me what she's eating. But if I miss a day, like there's you know I, it's not a one of my, it's not considered like a binge behavior for me. Uh, if I know I'm having let's say eight ounces of vegetables, it could be like either that vegetable or that vegetable. I know what I've got in my fridge. It's I don't have a, um, a an eating plan that requires me to absolutely only eat the things 
that I commit, but definitely in the quantities that I've committed them. But I think mm-hmm. it's a I think it's a, a good practice to I always encourage the people I sponsor to to commit their food to send to me and then they they put up a fuss and they're this and you know they complain about it and I say I don't care what you do because I'm going to be abstinent no matter what you know and recovered no matter what you do I'm t- I tell people to do it for their sake because one thing I learned is that a commitment you've made on paper or to another person is a commitment that's much harder to break if you say you're going to have X Y and Z and you're having this feeling like you want to make a change. That's different than if you if you never made a commitment, then really anything goes. So, so I think it's a good practice, and it's one that I, you know, fell by the wayside for a while for me, and then I picked it up again. Thanks, Christine. Thank you. Very helpful. Thank you, Christine, for your question, and that will close out this portion of our our presentation this morning. And thank you again, Esther, for all those answers from your experience, strength, and hope. Appreciate that. And again, as I was mentioning. Um, Esther will offer her contact information at the at the conclusion of our meeting, and let's do that. Let's conclude this meeting like we do all of our pre- Sunday presentations with reading from the big book on page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows, clear away the wreckage of your past, give freely of what you find, and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you 